Well, good morning, Centennial family and uh, friends who are joining us on the live stream this morning. We're uh, really glad that we can be together to look into God's Word. Uh, as you may know, we're in the middle of this sermon series in the book of Acts when the earliest believers were facing all sorts of new challenges. And as we look at this, we're asking questions, how was God at work in the midst of those challenges, and how did the church respond? And in this part of our sermon series, we're also trying to kind of focus in on the mission that God has given the church. Remember, we saw at the very beginning of this series in Acts 1-8, Jesus told his disciples that they were to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And today, we're going to see how God chooses to advance this mission, but in a very unlikely way. Now, as we get started here, I want to ask you to think of a time in your own life when things were going pretty much according to plan. You know, maybe they weren't perfect, but things were stable. You knew where you were going. Your plans were in place. You knew what to expect. And then something happened. And all of that changed. And you went from being assured to being kind of anxious and from being determined to being disoriented. Now, most of us don't have to go very deep into our memory banks, do we? Because this year has been a perfect example of how something that we couldn't have imagined just barged into our lives and, and pretty much changed everything. You know, every plan, every routine, every norm has been disruptive. Something happened and everything changed. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at a crisis event in the life of Paul, a point at which everything in his life changed. And we want to be looking for how God was at work in these really unsettling circumstances that he found himself in the midst of. Now, as we get started here, I just want to say something to maybe avoid a little bit of confusion. This man's name is Paul. That's in the Greek language. In Hebrew, his name is Saul. And in the book of Acts, we see both names used for the same person. So, this morning, as we together are reading text in Acts, and it says Saul, just realize we're, we're talking about the one we know as Paul. Through the whole message, we're just talking about Paul. Now, I'd like to give just a little bit of background. I know that some of this will be review, but it's going to help us just understand this unexpected event that Paul encounters. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus. Now, Tarsus still exists today. It's a city in Turkey. It's not too far from the Mediterranean Sea. It's not too far away from where modern-day Turkey borders with Syria. And over the years, the city of Tarsus had welcomed a number of Jews through its city gates. In fact, there were many different kind of people that lived there. So this young boy, Paul, a Jew, would have grown up in the midst of this Greco-Roman culture. He would have been at least familiar with some of the pagan religions that were practiced in Tarsus. He would have learned to speak the Greek language. 
and he was born as a Roman citizen. But he was also born into a very devout Jewish family, and he gives us a little synopsis of his early life in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. He says this, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, with regard to the law, a Pharisee. So it was probably around the age of 12 or 13 that Paul's family moved him to the city of Jerusalem. Now, why move him to Jerusalem? Well, it was to further his religious studies. Probably his father wanted him to study Judaism at the highest level. He could have you know, stayed in Tarsus and studied at the local synagogue and at home. That's what most Jewish boys would do. But his father had in mind that he would study under a famous rabbi, a Pharisee in Jerusalem by the name of Gamaliel. And what did his life look like in these early years before he was an adult? Well, he would have spent an enormous amount of time memorizing and reciting probably most of the Old Testament. He would have been trained to debate and to defend the Pharisees' particular views in the Old Testament law. And we can be pretty sure that Paul would have been a very good student, maybe the, the top of his class, because we can tell from his writings that he was very intelligent. He had learned to debate. He had learned to argue for the Jewish faith and its traditions and the Old Testament law. Paul had something else going for him. He was zealous. He was zealous about his faith. In fact, today, you know, we sometimes describe people as religious fanatics. Well, that description would have fit Paul to a T. In fact, when we are first introduced to Paul in the story of Acts, it's at the end of chapter 7, and we find him in Jerusalem. He's in the midst of an angry Jewish mob, and they're in the process of stoning the disciple Stephen because Stephen had claimed that Jesus was the Messiah. And just a few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 8, we read this. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. You see, the problem wasn't just Stephen. They'd gotten rid of Stephen, but in Jerusalem there were now thousands of Jews who believed that Jesus was risen from the dead. They were claiming that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Now, to Paul, at this stage in life, this wasn't just a novel, new, you know, religious idea. This was heresy. This was something that needed to be stamped out, and stamped out quickly. And this is what Paul gave himself to. Later in his life, he described just how fanatical he was at this point. 
Reading from Acts 26, beginning with verse 9, it says this, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Now this is exactly what Paul was doing as he prepared to make a journey to the city of Damascus. And we read about his preparations at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now it was a long road to Damascus. It was more than 150 miles north of Jerusalem. And Paul and some companions of his were on an authorized mission to go there to arrest and then to bring Christians back to trial in Jerusalem. And along the road to Damascus, Paul encountered the unexpected. And it jolted Paul with the same kind of surprise that you and I might have if we're going down a road like this and we were to hit a deep pothole. Has that ever happened to you before? You know, you, you didn't see it coming. <laughs> it felt like it tore the wheel off the car. I'm pretty sure we've all experienced that. I just, I just hope that for you, it wasn't as bad as it was for this guy. All right, so what was it? that surprised Paul along the road. Well, let's read about this. We pick up in verse 3. It says this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting he replied. Now, Paul describes this same event on two other occasions in the book of Acts. He's defending himself before other groups, and he's retelling his life story. So I want to look at those parallel passages now because we pick up just a few more details about what happened to Paul. So first, in Acts chapter 22, starting with verse 6, Paul says this, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. And then later, in Acts 26, 
when Paul is speaking before King Agrippa, he says this, beginning with verse 13. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice of one saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now just try to imagine this scene. A light blazing brighter than the sun. A presence that knocked everybody in the travel party to the ground. And then the voice of the risen Jesus speaking out of this heavenly brightness. I imagine that Paul's mind must have raced through the Old Testament scriptures, remembering times in the past when God's glory had appeared. You know, maybe he thought about when God appeared to the Israelites, and remember God's presence appeared like this intense burning fire. Or maybe he thought about Ezekiel, the prophet's vision of God's awesome presence. Ezekiel describes that for us in chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. Let's read. He says, I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire and a brilliant light surrounded him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Paul also saw a brilliant light. He also fell down. He also heard the voice of God speaking, but this was Jesus' voice. He wasn't expecting that. And this was not a voice speaking words of commendation. This was a rebuke. Jesus said, why do you persecute me? And we can't imagine the shock that Paul must have experienced as all of his prior assumptions about Jesus were torn down in an instant. Think about it. If this was Jesus, if Jesus was alive, if Jesus was the Messiah, if this was Jesus speaking to him out of this heavenly brightness, then it meant that he had gotten the most important thing wrong. It meant that after all of his years of memorizing the Old Testament law and poring over the words of the prophets, he had failed to recognize the fulfillment of their promises. Everything was different now that he had this insight. This meant everything had been reversed. Think about it. This meant that Stephen and these other Jesus followers, they weren't blasphemers. Paul was. It meant that Paul wasn't exercising righteous judgment on a bunch of infidels. It meant that he had been helping to murder and imprison the Messiah's followers. He wasn't stamping out a cult. He was, in fact, persecuting 
the Son of God. Just imagine, all of this must have just snapped into Paul's consciousness in one frightful moment. Something happened, and everything changed for Paul. Now look, this year, all of us are facing an unexpected situation. None of us saw any of the things coming that have unfolded in the year 2020. And look, we're, we're still not out of the woods, right? I mean, we still face an unpredictable future. So what's the appropriate posture to take in times like this? Well, let's look at Paul. Paul's got the answer to his first question, who are you, Lord? But when he retells this story in Acts 22, he tells us that he also asked a second question. He asked, what shall I do, Lord? Now, why would Paul ask this question? I mean, I imagine that Paul had a million questions racing through his mind at this moment. Questions about his theology, questions about his past interpretation of Scripture, personal questions. You know, I was about 10 years into my career in finance and accounting. I had spent years studying the minutiae of accounting procedures and tax law. I had been credentialed as a CPA. I had worked way too many hours in management for IBM. And then in my early 30s, God called me into full-time mission service. And this came as a shock to me. I, I had never wanted or imagined being in full-time ministry, but God made this really clear that this was his will for my life. And I can remember early on, as I was just praying and thinking about this, and as, as the implications were beginning to dawn on me, I remember having this conversation with God, and I said, so Lord, you knew from the beginning that you were going to call me into missions. Like, you knew from the day I was born that you were going to have me working with a mission organization. So, I have a little question for you. Why in the world did I need to take the CPA exam? I mean, that would have been a really nice one to just have skipped over if it wasn't necessary. Now look, I realize that, that most of you are sane, and that means you probably never went anywhere near the door of an accounting classroom in college. So I feel like I just need to put this into perspective for you. I've done some, some pretty challenging things in my life. I, I have a handful of degrees. I successfully defended a PhD dissertation. And you just need to know, by comparison, those things are like a cakewalk compared to studying for and passing the CPA exam. So I had my questions, and I bet Paul had plenty of his. But he doesn't ask those kind of questions, does he? He asked this one, what shall I do, Lord? And I think, when you think about it, this is actually the appropriate response 
whenever we find ourselves facing an uncertain future because this question implies two things. First of all, it acknowledges our own insufficiency. You know, we don't know the future, so we can't know what's best. And, and we don't have the resources within ourselves to just change every situation and make it go away. This question expresses an appropriate measure of humility. And the second thing that this question acknowledges is this. It acknowledges our trust in God's plan for our lives, even when we can't see it. Listen, God's plan for your life represents his very best for you. You just need to remember what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 11. The verse says this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, hope and a future, even when you can't see it for yourself, even when you're still in the midst of trying circumstances. Well, let's go back to our story now in Acts chapter 9. Paul is still on the road to Damascus. He's asked Jesus, what shall I do? Well, Jesus begins to give him an answer. In verse 6, Jesus says this, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Paul has been blinded. But this isn't an ordinary kind of blindness. I mean, the other men who were with him, who saw the light, evidently they weren't blinded. So this wasn't like snow blindness or you know, blindness from staring at the sun. This blindness was intended for Paul, specifically for him. And I think this was an object lesson in Paul's life. Just think about it. Here was the great learned Pharisee, the Hebrew of Hebrews, and he is being led by the hand like a little child. The one who was convinced that he was correcting the spiritually blind, it turns out he was blind himself all along. So God is humbling Paul, and I think that this was a necessary part of his conversion. So Paul is blind, and he fasts, and he prays for three long days as he waits. Now, when we come to the next part of the text, we actually come to a story within the story because we're introduced to a second character who also encounters an unexpected event, who also hears some rather confusing words from Jesus. His name is Ananias, and he's a disciple, a follower of Jesus. He lives in Damascus. Let's see how the, the text continues in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. 
the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias replied, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias has some reservations about Jesus' plan, doesn't he? He's heard of Paul. And I think that Ananias probably has some questions of his own, like, are you sure, Lord? You know, what if his repentance is ingenuine? I mean, what if Paul is just using this, you know, as a scheme to, to infiltrate the church? Well, listen, Ananias' hesitation is understandable, but, but we have to see this situation for what it really is. Ananias is being spoken to by Almighty God. See, in God's ways and his plans and, and what he intends to do in the lives of sinners, frankly, it's beyond us. We can't conceive of it. God doesn't take risk, right? God is completely sufficient to bring any sinner to himself, including a persecutor named Paul. And so, thankfully, Paul, excuse me, Ananias responds in obedience. And you know, what I take away from this is we need to remember the truth of Scripture. In places like Isaiah 55, where it speaks about our God and the fact that he's beyond our understanding. Let's look quickly at Isaiah 55, starting with verse 7. It says this, Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we need to realize at times, God may ask us to do things that seem risky to us, but we need to remember, God is still in control, right? If God gives us clear direction, as he did here with Ananias, then despite our hesitations, we need to obey. And thankfully, Ananias did. And, and listen, it's beautiful that when Ananias goes to where Saul was staying, Jesus uses him in the whole process of drawing Paul to himself. Ananias gets to be there to speak words of healing, to welcome Paul into the fellowship of the church, to see that he's baptized, and he tells him that he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Ananias gets to be a part of this whole thing. It's, it's great that he didn't hold back in fear. Let's look exactly at what happens next then, beginning in verse 17. It says this, Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, 
Something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So just notice that Ananias says, Brother Saul. You know, just, just let those words sink in. The guy who three days ago was the arch enemy is now a brother in Christ. And how is that possible? Well, because Jesus saved him. Everything changes when Jesus saves a person. And you know, when Jesus saves us, he doesn't just save us from something, our sins. He always saves us for something. He gives us a life of purpose. He lets us engage in ministry. He draws us into his mission. And that's exactly how God is going to use Paul. He's going to make him part of his mission. Paul is going to be used not only to communicate the good news of Jesus to his fellow Jews, and do you think he was capable of doing that? Think of how steeped in the scriptures he was. He could explain how Jesus could be seen in the Old Testament scriptures and the Jewish traditions, and yet he was also prepared to be a missionary to the Gentiles. Remember, he grew up in Gentile culture. He could speak the Greek language. And as someone who spent a, a good part of my adult life mobilizing and training and sending out long-term cross-cultural missionaries, I will tell you, a missionary is miles ahead if they already know the culture and speak the language of the people they're going to. And this is how God had prepared Paul. And so in each of these three accounts of the Damascus Road experience, we see Jesus commissioning Paul, calling him into his mission. It's said in slightly different ways, but I want to look at the account that we find in Acts chapter 26. Remember, Paul is retelling his life story here to King Agrippa, and this is how he describes it. In Acts 26, beginning with verse 16, Jesus says this to him, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and what you will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So just think about this. It's, it's so ironic to me that Paul was on a mission to destroy the church. And then Jesus gets a hold of his life and turns him around and sends him on a mission to expand the church. I mean, just a few days ago, this guy was blind. I mean, both spiritually and physically, and now he can see. The persecutor will become a preacher. The apostate will become an apostle. Such radical change. The unexpected. Something happened, Jesus, and everything was different. Well, here's something else that I want you to realize, and that is this. This unexpected event that changed the direction of Paul's life also changed ours. Because 
this man becomes the Apostle Paul. He will write 13 of the 27 inspired books of the New Testament. And over the centuries, so much of the church's theology and teaching is derived from what Jesus taught Paul and then Paul shared with others through his letters. And then don't miss this one, guys. The very fact that we are gathered here in this moment, people of non-Jewish backgrounds, to honor, to worship the Jewish Messiah, that fact is rooted in this historical event. The conversion of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, that's us. So we were also affected through this change. Now, one last thing that I don't want you to miss, and that is how God chose to use the church in the midst of this unexpected event. I suppose that Jesus could have drawn Paul to himself without using Ananias or other believers there in Damascus, but he didn't. Instead, the church was called to, to move out of a place of fear and in obedience to God to, to step into that situation. And in retrospect, we would say, what an amazing privilege God gave them. I mean, just, just think about this. They had the privilege of, of seeing Paul come into the kingdom and then speaking into his life in, in the very first days and weeks of him being a believer. Can you imagine, like Ananias, years later, speaking to his grandkids and saying, you know, kids, it's true. Your grandpa baptized the apostle Paul. And kids, I have to admit, I was, I was kind of scared at the moment because he was a wild one. And when I was baptizing him, I thought about maybe just leaving him under the water. <laughs> but it's a good thing I didn't. So we can say, yeah, it's a good thing nothing like that happened. Now, what about us? Well, listen, let's not let these lessons be lost on us. As we today, as a church, as individuals, are in the midst of an unexpected situation, we need to be like Paul in the sense where we would say, what shall we do, Lord? You remember last week as Carl was preaching, he concluded by talking about the importance of making space in our life to prayerfully ask questions like these and then listen to the Holy Spirit. God wants to give us direction, clear direction. And then when he does, like Ananias, we need to step into the situation in obedience. Even if there might be some fear, even if we might have some hesitancy, if God has made it clear, we need to step into that. And listen, when the church steps into the unexpected in faith and obedience, then God can do the unexpected. In fact, he can do far more than we can ever imagine. And this is exactly what Paul was trying to teach believers in the city of Ephesus years later when he wrote to them. And I'm going to let Paul's words from Ephesians serve as a conclusion for my message this morning. Here's what he writes in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do 
immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way that our lives have been blessed through what you did in this man's life. Thank you for the way you use the church in the midst of this situation. And Lord, we would say today, as we encounter the unexpected, would you continue to give us wisdom, give us direction, give us courage, give us faith, that we might obediently serve you and that you might do the unexpected. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.